Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Antonios Klapsis, Eventis, Hatsai Vaiseliu, and Effie Pedaliu regarding their newly edited book, The Greek Junta and the International System, a case study of Southern European dictatorships published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2020. Their other co-editor, Constantine Arvanitopoulos, is not with us today, but has contributed equally to them to the preparation of this excellent volume. Antonis Klapsis is Assistant Professor of Diplomacy and International Organization at the University of the Peloponnese. There, He serves as the academic coordinator of the Center of International and European Political Economy and Governments in the Department of Political Science and International Relations. Evanthis Hatsaivasaliu is professor of post-war history at the University of Athens. Effie Pedalio is visiting fellow at the London School of Economics, Ideas, ID. EAS Institute. She is Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. She is also co-editor of the Paul Grage book series, Security, Conflict and Cooperation in the Contemporary World. And although he is not with us today, Constantine Arvanitopoulis is Professor of International Relations at Pentheon University in Athens. I am honored to be with the three of you today. Thank you for your time and your attention. Thank you. To begin, can you tell us about yourselves? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your lives inspired the scholarship that you've devoted your careers to? Well, how strange to ask this uh, from a historian. Well, I'm, I must say I'm a Vantiskets Vasiliou. I grew up in the north of Greece. Uh, I studied in Thessaloniki, uh, and then my steps just took me to international history. Uh, why one chooses to study history, I, I really have not been able to answer this question. Uh, I suppose it's uh, an intellectual inclination. And uh, I mean, I, I really was very interested in uh, in history, in contemporary history from my very young age uh, and then i had the opportunity and the the privilege to to study at the london school of economics to do my postgraduate studies and my phd there uh, i think that that was really a formative experience i mean the intellectual environment of the lse uh, late 80s early 90s uh, which was extremely rich and it really opened a new world for me. Thank you for sharing. Anyone else? Hello. 
Please. I am Matthew Pedalia. I am a diplomatic historian. I specialize in the history of international relations during the Cold War. My, I'm not a historian of Greece, but my formative experience, one of my formative experiences in life was growing up under the Greek hunter. Uh, the insecurity and fear I felt at that time when I saw my parents whispering on that day and learning that their friends were being arrested one by one, something that stigmatized my life. So when I felt comfortable as a historian and I had sort of made my name studying countries other than Greece, I decided to turn my attention to a topic that would appease my intellectual curiosity, and that was uh, human rights abuses during the junta years, and how this period affected Greece, but mainly how it affected the rise of the international uh, human rights movement, how it affected institutions. And that is why, as a sideline to my Cold War, my main Cold War output, I started writing about that period and human rights abuses by the junta and the international system. And sometime, somehow I got stuck because of Avanthus, I suppose, writing more and more and exploring that period more. So that's me. Thank you. Well, I'm Antonis Klapsis. I was born and raised in Athens, in the wide area of Athens. And um, I'm focusing on diplomatic history with a special emphasis on Greek diplomatic history of the 20th century. Uh, speaking about formative experience, I have to say that Maybe the most important one, which uh, made me uh, become uh, quite interested interested in uh, international history, was the fact that when I was only one, eleven years old, I grew up in the eighties, as you as you will understand. Um, I I saw the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the communist regimes in Eastern Europe, which uh, was a quite which was a shock uh, for uh, the world back then and. Uh, most importantly, for a for a child, as I was uh, in eighteen uh, in nineteen eighty nine. So I think this was something that urged me to to become more interested in international history. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message would you like readers to take away from engagement with this volume? Well, I think uh, I answered that question. So. Uh, Please. Well, let me let me try to to say a few words. Uh, this started from a conference that we had in Athens on the 50th anniversary of the imposition of the Greek dictatorship, 2017. But that conference was uh, uh, designed and planned in a rather peculiar way. I mean, uh, the idea was not only to study a Greek phenomenon, uh, we needed to see the relationship of Greece and of that dark moment of Greek history, which was the, the dictatorship, uh, with the wider world. 
And he, this is where the title comes, I and mean, the Greek Kund and the international system. How did it fit, or how did it did not fit? Uh, uh, what was the the impact of those years? Seven years in the contemporary era is a long time. It's not a short parenthesis. Uh, how did this uh, uh, interact with Greece's uh, long effort to become integrated into the Western world? Uh, what was the what were the uh, consequences, the repercussions, uh, the burdens that the dictatorship created for the country? Uh, in the short term and in the long term, and mostly, mostly, what does the, that dictatorship and the fact that Greece managed to overcome it, what does it mean for its relationship with the wider world and with the important uh, 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 region of, of Southern Europe, which was in fact, I mean, Effie is much more able to speak about it uh, than me. Uh, uh, Southern Europe was in fact created as Effie has argued many times, uh, exactly thanks to those uh, processes of transition to democracy in the 1970s. And I think, Effie, you can say a few words about this. So it, it is, it was, uh, the dictatorship was a very dark moment, but the fact that Greece managed to overcome it and to come back to the international system, to return to the international system, uh, was a hugely important uh, process in modern Greek history. Yeah, I mean, Evanthes is absolutely right. Uh, although we have that region of Southern Europe up until the 1970s, really, that period is uh, northern, uh, it's south, northern Mediterranean. It is still part of the Mediterranean rather than Europe. And Southern Europe as a term, as a descriptor, starts becoming more and more common in uh, the foreign ministries of uh, Britain and the State Department during the 1970s when they are trying to cope with the upheaval democratization of those countries bring. So Southern Europe is a term that actually Southern Europe has been created throughout the, the Cold War. It is really a byproduct of the Marshall Plan, NATO, and American engagement in the defense of Europe. Eisenhower's concept of the defense of Europe being likened to a bottle. So the southern, the the lower part of that bottle is southern Europe, and the bottleneck is the Iberic uh, Peninsula. So somehow, from Portugal to Turkey, you have a geostrategic community that was born during the Cold War, but it finds its name and sort of purpose with democratization and the fear that America feels that it cannot help to the stabilization of that period because of its identification with the authoritarian dictatorial regimes that have fallen. So the European community takes over the role of the stabilizer, the stabilizer. And those countries, because of where they are, 
and they're being incorporated into Europe, they become the EEC's, later the EU's southern border. They become its southern periphery, therefore southern Europe. So that is how I view that process of the South Europeanization of the mm. Northern Mediterranean coast. This is an excellent, this is excellent for a title, I think. <laughs> if I may add something, please. What makes uh, the Greek case unique, I mean, uh, the imposition of the Greek uh, dictatorship in 1967, is the fact that it is the only case in the in uh, in a Western European country, Western European in, in the political sense during the Cold War, uh, where a dictatorship was imposed after the end of the Second World War, because there were dictatorships in Spain and Portugal, but these dictatorships were the results of uh, developments that took place in the early in the late 1930s. So Greece was the only case of a, of a Western European country where a democratic regime was actually overthrown in 1967, and uh, where democracy was re-established after a seven-year dictatorial rule. And I think what makes our book um, uh, special is the fact is uh, the fact that this uh, uniqueness is somehow um, reflected on uh, the um, the structure of the book because we're not only we're not only interested in internal uh, Greek affairs but we also uh, focus on how uh, the colonial regime interacted with other state actors with other important countries secondly because we focus on how international organizations but also the rising transnational human rights agenda um, had to do with uh, with the Greek Kunda uh, and thirdly, because we compare and contrast the Greek case of transition with uh, transitions that took place roughly at the same period of time in Spain and Portugal. So we, we show uh, the differences, but also the similarities between the three cases, Greece, Spain and Portugal. I would like to add something, if I may. What Antonis highlighted is really very, very important because... Um, I have been to conferences where people, historians, do not realize that 1967 represents a major turning point in the history of Greece and the history of the West, because Greece had its problems, but it was a malfunctioning democracy. Uh, it was never a dictatorship after the end of the Second World War. So its difference between Spain and Portugal is that Spain and Portugal throughout that period are regarded as anachronisms, whereas the West really invests in the future of Greece. For Greece to become a democracy it is something that the whole West is invested in. And somehow that retrograde step in what seems to be a sort of progressive period of democratization for Greece is very shocking for international public opinion because somehow a country which is part of the West and it is 
a democracy suddenly becomes a dictatorship and suddenly makes all those countries that believe that democracy and uh, um, the rule of law and a rules-based order are uh, have been taken for granted, somehow they're not. It creates a lot of insecurity in democratic countries and it makes people feel unsure about their future and raises the question who protects democracy or rather who defends democracy mm. as well, both. Well, may I take the matter from here? Uh, Please. Exactly uh, having these uh, research priorities, uh, the book is really about Greece, the Southern Europe and the international system. I mean, in the book, one can find uh, uh, chapters written by hugely important historians, international historians uh, from other countries, uh, France, Italy, Spain, uh, the US. Portugal, the US as well. Uh, and uh, it deals with uh, uh, research questions such as what was the attitude of other Western countries, uh, European or the United States, towards the Greek dictatorship? And that was, as Effie said, they were embarrassed. Uh, the states were embarrassed. But for strategic reasons of the cold, relating to the Cold War, they did not want to break relations with Greece. And what was the attitude of uh, international organizations and that there was a big difference there. I mean, the European community immediately denounced the Greek dictatorship. It actually froze uh, an association agreement between Greece and the European community, but also uh, uh, made uh, made it clear that after the restoration of democracy, would Greece would have a future as a full member of the community. As as and this is what happened, uh, the Council of Europe. Uh, also had a very progressive stance. It effectively expelled Greece from its ranks uh, because of accusations of torture. And of course, the relationship with the rising transnational human rights agenda and movement, uh, which actually, if I may say so, it received a big boost because of the Greek dictatorship, because I mean, a dictatorship in Greece, a country which is perceived as the birthplace of democracy, I mean, that was really offensive for large parts of uh, the Western public. And this led to a further mobilization of this transnational movement. It boosted it. Uh, and uh, uh, so it is a, a picture. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, may I also add the relationship with the other uh, Southern European dictatorships and transitions as well. So the book raises a, a, a whole specter of uh, uh, questions relating to the international system. It's it's this is not a book just about Greece. It is a book about uh, trends in the international system, the way that it works, the different ways that nation states or international organizations or transnational movements uh, deal with such a, a phenomenon. Absolutely. It, you, have ha you have really put your finger on the pulse there because I think the most important thing of the book 
is that it looks at the international system and how these countries slot into it and how they affect it and how it, it, these countries are uh, influenced by the major trends in uh, international affairs. It is really important to understand that this is a very fluid period in history. Mm -hmm. It is the age of protest. So the dictatorship in Greece is creating problems for the internal security of Western European countries as it comes on top of the Vietnam War. It is the age of detente where America is trying to um, find an accommodation with the Soviet Union by trying to freeze the conflict in the Mediterranean. And you have a Mediterranean that it is literally, literally uh, about to overflow. It's boiling up, basically. You have two Arab-Israelis war. You have the war of attrition in between. You have the rise of Gaddafi. So why am I putting all this onto the table. It is just to show the, rich, the richness and the diversity of that view and all the things one can study by opening it up. It's not a book about Spain, Greece, Portugal. It is about these countries. It is about dictatorship, democracy, transition, and mm. the international system and how it operates during that period of time. Let's not be too deterministic here. What is the novel element in your book's discussion of the Greek junta vis-a-vis -vis other scholarly portrayals of the junta? Well, I think this international dimension is a salient uh, element. Uh, it is not a, a, a book written by Greeks, about Greeks and for Greeks. It is, it is the relationship with the wider world. It is, as Effie said, uh, this is a period of huge transitions in world history. Uh, another transition, if I may add, is the, the start of uh, what we call the post-industrial age. Uh, the rise of uh, the human rights, the human rights agenda, scientific developments, including the 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 big start of the, the international cooperation on environmental issues as well this is also being touched uh in the book uh, and the greek dictatorship was uh, an anti-modernist force it was it was really a reactionary uh, force uh, and how how this uh, uh, interacted with trends in the international system uh, I think these are the novel elements. I mean, uh, it, it's not, uh, a reader will not find there a, 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 an account or a, a detailed description of the dictatorial regime itself. It, it will find uh, many things which have to do with its relationship with the world and uh, with these huge transitions, which in fact created the world of our, of today. I mean, the, the, we are in a post-industrial uh, age. I would and, like uh, to... Sorry, sorry. Uh, no. In the end of the day, I mean, Greece, uh, perhaps also Portugal, not so much Spain, Greece is a small nation. 
a small state in a, in a turbulent area, the Mediterranean, uh, and uh, it usually has the, the the obligation to adjust to larger trends in international life, and 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 the dictatorship was a force that refused to adjust. It was it was a regime of a different age, uh, and this this is also another salient feature. I mean, the, this this uh, obligation, this need for adjustment and uh, uh, how Southern Europe, by adjusting to these new trends, created itself. It created itself as a hardcore of the Western world. I, I would like to add something that uh, most of the historiography of the Greek junta or of the Francoist regime or the Portuguese dictatorship have been written mainly from an introverted perspective and introspective, actually. Mm -hmm. it, it is an introspection that we apply rather than trying to find connections. The difference about this book is that up until now, books have focused on the regimes themselves. They have focused on bilateral relations between the different Greek, Spanish, Portuguese uh, 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 regimes with America, Germany, and the UK. But this book is different because it is trying to find the international connections, rather only bilateral or introspective ones. And if I may give one example of Please. how we focus on uh, issues that have not been very much dealt with by international bibliography, uh, for example, uh, the, um, uh, the book touches upon the diplomatic initiatives of the Kunda towards third world countries or countries that have not been very much uh, of interest of Greek foreign policy up until the late 1960s, such as uh, the People's Republic of China or even uh, uh, the relations between Greece and uh, uh, African countries like Libya, Congo, the Central African uh, Republic. So it gives uh, an, a, a very uh, new perspective on how Greece positioned itself in the international system during the late 1960s and the uh, early 1970s in um, relation to the fact that uh, Greece was somehow um, uh, isolated in the framework of the Western world and tried to find uh, new ways of... Um, uh, of uh, uh, imposing of uh, developing relations with uh, countries that do not belong to the to the Western world. The other novel aspect is also that we deal with international institutions as well as with NGOs as well. So it is really a very sort of um, encompassing view of what is happening at that particular time, in that particular region, which is going extreme turbulence. Can you tell us about Panaitois Pepinelis? Why is he significant? Can you tell us about his relationship to the junta? Avanti? Oh, okay, let me let me start, but I'm sure that Effie and Andonis will. Well, look, Panaitois Pepinelis and his relationship with the junta is a rather painful episode of Greek history. Uh, Pipinelis was a major diplomat 
uh, he was never, I mean, he was always very conservative. Um, his understanding of international affairs was that of a, of an expert. He was the closest Greece got to having a real politiker. Um, it's not very easy for a small country. I mean, a small country cannot exercise a crudely real politic uh, because it's a small country. It doesn't have so much hard power. Uh, Pidinellis was extremely um, respected in the Western world. He was the permanent undersecretary of the Greek foreign ministry during the Greek civil war in the 1940s. And then he became a permanent representative, the first permanent representative of Greece to NATO, enjoying great respect uh, in the Western alliance. Then he entered politics, he became minister. Uh, and then suddenly uh, uh, he was uh, uh, very close to the uh, Greek royal house. And then suddenly, uh, in 1967, during a crisis with Turkey, he agreed to become foreign minister of the junta. Uh, that was a shock, because this, the junta was a team of ridiculous people, very low quality people. And what did a person like uh, Pipinelis, I mean, uh, one, one of the, arguably, and until that time, the best diplomat that Greece had ever had, uh, what did he have to do with these people? I think that Pipinelis made a mistake, two mistakes. First of all, uh, he believed that he had to step in to uh, serve his country and to protect the foreign ministry from, from the interdictions of the junta. The, foreign min the, the, the dictatorship did not have many people friendly to them in the foreign ministry, and Pipinelis wanted to protect it. Secondly, uh, I think that Pipinelis made uh, another great mistake. He believed that uh, an authoritarian regime, which did not have to count the political cost, could help him uh, make things in uh, foreign policy that were arguably, if not impossible, very difficult under uh, democratic governments. He proved wrong, of course, because even an authoritarian regime of that kind is extremely populist, and in the end, Pipinelis didn't manage to, to to have such a lasting impact as foreign minister of the junta. He only, I think that he only destroyed his name and and uh, left a black spot in an otherwise brilliant career. He like was the, he, he was he was the only major uh, political figure who agreed to. Uh, cooperate with the Junta. I would like to add something here because I think there was something particular about the Greek foreign ministry because Pipinelis was not the only one who decided to sacrifice himself for the sake of the Junta. There were others as well. There were diplomats like Economou Gouras or um, Santhopoulos Palamas who decided to, and Pipinellis, who decided to guide the junta through the international system. And that was really very unfortunate because they really could not uh, mollify that regime. They could not legitimize it. They could not even tame it. And I think they were useful idiots in the hands of the junta. They 
tried basically to show a respectable face of the Greek junta abroad, which was impossible because the junta was its own worst enemy. They did not believe in having good uh, public relations or anything like that. The only thing they wanted was the consolidation of their position uh, and basically through um, uh, torture. There is no better way to put it. Uh, so how can a diplomat legitimize torture? They can't because torture is the one thing that speaks directly to the Western European conscience. Is something that the Western European conscience cannot accept. And the junta had lost the game to begin with. However, this is the Cold War and Greece was very useful real estate for the waging of the Cold War. So most of its allies, although they isolated as much as they could, they were not prepared to take steps to overthrow it. Now, Pipinellis. Pipinellis becomes very important because of his desire to protect the junta takes on the might of the Council of Europe when the Council of Europe tries to um, adjudicate on uh, torture in Greece and uh, the Scandinavian and Dutch cases against Greece at the Council of, the Council of Europe. Pipinellis has very good relations, as Avanti said, with the diplomatic um, elite throughout the Western world. And I think to a large degree, it took up until 1969 for the case to be resolved because Pipinellis was able to convince his interlocutors that the junta is going to temper its ways. Obviously the junta didn't and Greece had to withdraw from the Council of Europe so that it was not thrown out. And that's where Pipinellis really becomes very important, I think. If I may add something uh, to what uh, uh, Evantis and Effie said before, is the fact that throughout the period that Pipinellis was the Minister of Foreign Affairs, he managed somehow to tame the dictators because uh, the dictators were very incompetent in uh, and had no practical experience with uh, uh, foreign policy. So I think he uh, he was the man that managed to uh, to, to to make to take the initiatives that uh, made, uh, for example, the Greek Turkish war um, uh, avoidable uh, because the, the dictators at the beginning of the, the dictatorship were. Uh, uh, put Greece in a situation that almost brought Greece and Turkey at the brink of war. So I think that Pipinelis was um, had a positive influence on, on Greek foreign policy in the sense that he managed to avoid the wars uh, happening. And it is characteristic that after the death of Pipinelis, things became uh, went from bad to worse in terms of Greek foreign policy, especially 
at the very last stages of uh, dictatorship after uh, November 1973. I, I have a different view of that, especially of that period between November and December 1967. I don't doubt at all that Pipinelli's tried to plead the case of Greece with um, international uh, international actors, especially um, in NATO, NATO Council, and also uh, in other fora. But I think what really averts the war between Turkey and Greece at that time is not Pipinelli's being able to take the to tame the junta. It is Cyrus Vance who really lays it on the table that the United States is not going to be looking very favorably to Greece's case. Can you tell us about the European community's relations with the Greek junta? How did the policies of specific member states differ? Right, thank you. Um, now, you have to think of the, the European community as an organization, and that organization has a very clear view. They freeze the association agreement with Greece. Greece and Turkey have an association agreement since 1961 with the European community, it, the so-called Athens Agreement. The Athens Agreement freezes upon the um, imposition of the junta. Each country, however, adopts different positions. Britain, for example, adopts the position, actually Br the British position is a bit topsy-turvy at, at times because uh, you have in power initially a Labour government under Harold Wilson who really does not like the regime at all. But at the same time, it is obvious that the, there are economic benefits to be accrued from a relationship with that regime. And also there is Cyprus. So, and above all, there is the fear that if the regime collapses, who comes next? So Britain adopts a position of wait and see towards the junta. Germany initially decides that its economic contacts with Greece are too important because as Moon Spelt has written, the role of Germany in the post-war period is to tie Greece to the West. So the economic relationship between Germany and Greece is very close and it remains close for most of the junta years until Willy Brandt comes to power. France again, uh, the French, don't forget the junta comes to power when President de Gaulle is in power and de Gaulle is trying to build his own Mediterranean policy during that time. So, um, uh, France adopts a policy of toleration towards the junta. 
the reason I put Britain into the discussion is that this is a period where Britain is very important in the way it acts in European matters because it is trying to become a part of the European community. Then we have the Scandinavian countries which adopt a position, an ethical position towards Junta, a position of international humanitarianism, which really uh, typifies the foreign policies of those countries. What you have to understand at the same time is that those countries have very little contact with Greece, either economic or political, and they don't really think Greece is very European in their eyes either. So there is a motive of uh, different attitudes uh, towards Europe expressed by different states. However, the Scandinavian countries are very, very important because they decide to sue Greece, to take legal action against the Greek junta in the Council of Europe. And that way, they succeed to, to sanction the regime and also elaborate a better uh, legal framework for the protection of human rights. Um, anyone who wants to add anything, other countries, <laughs> the United States? Well, if I may add something, I mean, uh, it is exactly as Effie said, uh, what we see in, uh, in the European context is that the large European countries adopt a much more realistic policy, taking into account Cold War considerations. The idea is not to lose Greece. They, they, they dislike, they despise the, the European dictatorship. But in the end of the day, under Cold War considerations, they, they decide that they should not break their relations with Greece and also their economic interests. The North, smaller Northern European countries are much more idealist. Uh, NATO is much more realistic, again, uh, does not want to lose Greece, especially at a time when the Soviet, a Soviet fleet is in the Mediterranean. Uh, and uh, the European community is much more uh, principle-oriented. It immediately uh, freezes the association agreement with Greece, and the Council of Europe uh, effectively expels Greece. So what we see is... It, I may sound a bit simplistic, uh, we see a duality uh, uh, in reactions. Uh, larger actors act uh, with the restraints of foreign policy realism and security realism, uh, whereas smaller countries and the new international organizations are much more forward in their uh, um, responses to, to the Greek Honda. It is, again, very interesting. And in the end of the day, it is a kind of I mean, Effie has uh, argued this. It's a kind of compromise uh, among the big and the smaller countries in Europe uh, that Greece will not be expelled from NATO, but it will be expelled from the Council of Europe. I mean, on the other hand, it is also a, a, a part of, a, of the political responses of a rising uh, European uh, economic community, European community. 
I mean, it is sparse, not only that, also the, the attitudes to, to Francoist Spain as well, but it is part of um, an agenda, a, a political agenda that the European community develops in these years, uh, not to accept dictatorships, and uh, it will evolve eventually uh, on the occasion of Southern Europe, uh, in the European community using the lure of accession in order to stabilize these countries into the Western world. Uh, uh, a soft power, kind of soft power, and the use of the concept of Europeanization in order to encourage moderation and the definite entry of these countries in the hard core of the West. It is also a difference shows the difference between intergovernmentalism and uh, aspiration towards federalism as well, because in NATO, you have a military organization which has a practical task in hand, which is defense from the Soviet threat. So it's bound to be realistic and at the same time, no matter what the internal discussion is, in the governmental nature, and what you've said very well, the, the search for the lowest common denominator mm. as a means of unity is not going to allow any spectacular actions against Greece. However, with the European institutions, you also see the rise of European identity during those years. And you also see that countries are prepared to compromise a degree of their sovereignty on the altar of noble ideals like human rights. And there you have the Council of Europe. So I think it is all those things that are at play when it comes to European institutions NATO, and what's really missing from the UN as well, because the global institution cannot, it is the institution where sovereignty is revered. So decisions against the state is very difficult to be taken during that period. How did Amnesty International respond to the Greek junta? Hmm. Amnesty is it's an interesting case, actually, because Amnesty was set up in the early 60s. It is a very new organization. It is an organization that still has not found its niche. It has tried campaigns to highlight abuses in Portugal, in um, Spain, in Latin America, and somehow it cannot attract international attention. However, the Greek case becomes a magnet for international attention. And the um, uh, Amnesty International developed a very symbiotic relationship with the Greek resistance in its efforts to highlight abuses of human rights in Greece. Its reports are really excellent because they're based on research and factual information, and they're the basis 
for many of the legal action against Greece in the Council of Europe, as well as uh, at the level of uh, and, uh, the UN, because the Greek case was brought in front of the Human Rights Commission of the UN as well. Um, it, it works very closely together with um, the International Commission of Jurists. Those two organizations have something in common because a lot of the lawyers working in one of the institutions works for the other as well. And Amnesty shows a degree of flexibility which is amazing. It is not act in an ideological way only, it becomes quite pragmatic and it approaches people like Noel Baker, a British MP who happens to be a landlord, big landlord in uh, the island of Evia in Greece, who is a friend of the junta. They try to come close to him and they do. And he uh, provides better access for them through the junta to um, meet people who have been uh, tortured. So its reports are very, very well um, documented. And so what we see with Amnesty is absolutely vital for the elaboration of the plight of the Greek political prisoners. Uh, it highlights the deficits of the Red Cross. So the Red Cross has to rethink it's, uh, it is its um, procedures. And by the end, by the time the junta falls, Amnesty International is one of the most, has risen to become one of the most important international transnational NGOs for the articulation of human rights. Anyone wants to add something? What new perspectives are offered in your book regarding George Papadopoulos? Well, uh, the, the truth of the matter is that Papadopoulos, the, the major leader of the Greek junta until 1973, well, he does not really loom very large in our book. I mean, he was not an expert on foreign policy and all, all the people of the junta uh, had a very parochial understanding of the international system. Uh, I think that what comes up very clearly in the book is not just a picture of an authoritarian regime, it's also a picture of the Hunda as an anti-modernist force. Uh, anti-modern force as well. Sorry? anti-western forces well. and 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 anti-western uh, uh, this is something that has been blurred in public discussion uh, although the junta i mean the fact that the dictatorships were anti-communists is not enough to make them pro-western i mean uh, the egyptians uh, nasser or qasim in iraq uh, sorry uh, 
Nasser or Qasim in Iraq, they really slaughtered their communists. They, they, they were not pro-Western. Uh, uh, on the contrary, as Andoni said before, the uh, emphasis that the junta puts in its relationship with the country, countries of the global south, uh, which are not pro-Western at all, uh, it shows the degree of their isolation and their, it's an indication of their search to find somebody to speak to. Uh, Papadopoulos, in this respect, uh, appears as uh, the leader of, a, in, in, in international terms, a very incompetent regime. There's a, one thing I would like to add. It is not only Papadopoulos. There are several factions within the Greek junta. Mm, so the Greek junta is not as solid as it appears uh, at first glance. There are several people who fight against Papadopoulos. The younger officers do not uh, dislike Papadopoulos because of the fact that they feel that he is quite uh, lenient with uh, the old politician elite, political elite, that he has become too um, involved in, uh, let's say, social life and so on. So the Greek junta is much more complicated than uh, it seems to be. And this explains the fact why there were internal frictions uh, within the Hunda that eventually led to uh, its the, the downfall of Papadopoulos in November 1973, when uh, Brigadier General Ioannidis actually overthrew Papadopoulos as the leader of uh, a more radical group of younger uh, um, officers within the Greek Hunda. Uh, there were also many anti-Western elements within the Hunda, not only uh, Papadopoulos. Uh, I don't think he was the most anti-Western of, of, of them all, but there were others who were uh, much more radical and much more anti-liberal than Papadopoulos himself, and uh, they felt that a sort of a permanent military regime should be established in Greece that should never have um, uh, given up uh, authority and that should have never uh, that never should have um, uh, applied uh, parliamentary democracy in Greece. I mean, the interesting thing also about Papadopoulos, we are talking about him, is somebody who cannot speak good Greek. He does not understand foreign policy. He does, he's not interested in the world. But at the same time, he spends a lot of time being the foreign minister of that period. Which is weird, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is uh, their inability to understand how the government of a modern state works. Good point. What new perspectives are presented here on the history of U.S.-Greek relations? Yeah, this is a very. Andoni, would you like to? Yeah. Uh, there is a, let's say, um, a sort of a myth concerning the involvement of the United States in the imposition of, of the Hunda, especially in Greece. Many people feel that uh, the Americans were behind the imposition of the Hunda, uh, whereas uh, exactly the opposite uh, happened. The Americans did not have a clue about the imposition of the Hunda, and they were very, very much surprised at the beginning of, uh, of the military coup d'etat. Uh, of course, eventually they uh, they tried to establish a sort of a relations, a relations with the Hunda and they tried to take advantage 
of uh, of the fact that uh, there was a, a stable military government in Greece in order to promote their own interests. But um, one of the interesting um, aspects of the book, I think, is uh, based on uh, Harry Papasoteriou's paper, which uh, uh, examines how President Nixon uh, dealt with uh, the junta by examining uh, the, the the tapes of his um, uh, encounters with the, with the, with the junta i think that it, it shows that the um, the americans were mostly as it was mentioned before interested in the promotion of their own strategic aims rather than the promotion of let's say legality or the promotion of human rights or any other idealistic um, aspects of international relations they were uh, real politicians more or less please shall i go first actually it's interesting because we have two different um administrations during that period we have a democratic administration at the lyndon johnson and then we have the nixon administration uh the junta happens uh, at uh, when johnson is in power. Um, Johnson really is not particularly taken by the junta, but then again, that is yet another problem that happens uh, in on his watch. He's much more interested in Vietnam. So that is something that he does not really pay much attention to. And uh, people lower uh, under him, are the people who are dealing really uh, with the junta. And initially, we see uh, the administration projecting uh, two different uh, approaches. One is we may have to tolerate them. The other one is if we are stern with them, they may change their ways. So um, an embargo, the only Western country actually that took um, action against the junta is the United States with the heavy weapons military embargo against the country. But everything, all American policy towards Greece changes after the Six Days War. The 1967 Arab-Israeli conflict changes all the calculations of the Americans in the region. Greece was always important. Now Greece, are, not Greece, Greece's territorial geographic position becomes indispensable. Then you have the Nixon administration coming to power. And in Henry Kissinger, you have the ultimate real politica, but both as a national security advisor and later as uh, for, uh, Secretary uh, of State. So he's somebody who just wants stability so that he can pursue his Vietnam policy and his detente policy without having any problems in the Mediterranean. So the junta becomes acceptable and even supported to stay for as long as it can. But then again, I wonder, uh, I think that this is something that uh, a question that the book also helps to raise. Um, I mean, if we had Henry Kissinger with us today, 
I I think that he would have uh, uh, told us uh, that he is not a fairy tale. The United States generally is not a fairy tale of the international system. That he was member of a government that was elected to promote American national interests and not the national interests of others. This is, again, a, a, an indication of a realpolitik uh, approach. Uh, but in the end of the day, I mean, I think Kissinger would have told them that, would have told us, if the Greeks cannot put their house in order, I mean, it's not my yeah, job to do it. Yeah, which is what he said. But at the same time, Kissinger is interesting. Uh, because Tom Swartz tried to engage him on the point of Greece. He will never talk about Greece. He will talk about all other foreign policy issues he dealt with, but he will never talk about Greece. So there is something there. Yes, what probably, I don't probably there is something, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Although he was very charming when I met him, I have to say. That, that I was Greek was not a problem. What new perspectives are presented in this book regarding the Papandreou's? I think the book really um, talks about the period in between the Papandreou's, so there isn't so much focus on them. Well, there is, there is a mention about the... the the, the, the fear that Andreas Papandreou, the younger one, uh, created in Washington and in American official circles. You see, initially they, they saw him as a, a, a friendly element in the, uh, the Greek political system. He was an American citizen, an American professor, and then they felt betrayed by his uh, turn to rather more populist or nationalist policies. And uh, Perhaps, uh, and this is the the, the, the argument, perhaps that, uh, perhaps it is that their fear of Papandreou uh, may have contributed, somehow contributed, in their inability to, to, to see the Hunda coming, this particular type of dictatorship. But then again, Papandreou becomes, during the Lyndon Johnson years, a focal point for uh, protest in America as well. So his incarceration helped the transnational uh, yeah. human rights movement to, to become stronger, in America at least, during that period, because there are all these brilliant academics, lawyers and economists who, across the political spectrum who try to free him. So... What forms of ecological, environmental, and scientific cooperation did Greece engage in during the times of the junta? Well, uh, the dictatorship, did, as I said, it was an anti-modernist force. It did not understand contemporary trends. And uh, among them, of course, it, it, the, the dictatorship did not understand the rise of the environmentalist movement. It was too modern for the uh, Hunda people to, to, to comprehend. So to put it in a few words, uh, the dictators tried to participate in uh, Western programs of uh, on the environment, 
seeking to, to, to secure a kind of recognition and acceptance by the Western countries. When they saw that the Western countries would not allow them to use the environmental programs in this political way, they simply lost their interest in them and uh, the, uh, uh, Greece became part of this environmental uh, international cooperation only after the collapse of the Hunger. It's interesting, however, uh, it is not about scientific cooperation, but it is about their aspirations somehow. They wanted to purchase atomic reactors from the United Kingdom. They tried to set up nuclear cooperation with Israel. They, they had very, very peculiar ideas if you think that how anachronistic they were, how um, really sclerotic that regime was, its aspirations were incredible at times. And yeah, I'm just... These were, these were piecemeal uh, uh, initiatives. They were not part of a larger scheme, a larger project, uh, or a full understanding of worldview. Uh, they, they were just uh, you know, opportunistic moves. Somebody thought of them and they they just went for them. I agree. I agree. I just find it weird. <laughs> Can you tell us about the lived experiences of Greek refugees abroad during the times of the junta? What kind of activism and advocacy did they engage in? Right. Um... You are talking about a very diverse community of activists here in socio-political terms. Um, you have workers in Germany and Sweden. You have students in Italy. You have um, middle and upper middle class intellectuals, journalists, businessmen um, in France and Britain. So it is a very diverse community. So it's very difficult really to say what their lived experience was. What you can say is that they were very committed to the return of democracy in Greece. Uh, most of them were able to articulate a very attractive message through the international media uh, and the international media was able to um, propagate it widely. Uh, there were people who even when I say that there were middle and upper middle class, they went through acute poverty living abroad in their effort to make a democracy return uh, to Greece. There are sort of um, uh, the, their actions and their activities were very diverse again. They were they began with protests with the Vietnam movement. Then they were able to uh, make the links with the humanitarian uh, 
uh, with the human rights uh, movement, which they helped to become much stronger and much more articulate uh, than it was. They were, they used um, many types of activity, uh, protests outside um, NATO um, council meetings so that they could attract attention. Sometimes uh, some of their uh, supporters were from the extreme left, but they were never became tarnished with the extreme left of their activities. Uh, they were able to propagate a very articulate message. And that is why uh, the Council of Europe was in the end able to prosecute those cases against Greece so well because they were able to uh, present a coherent case and also present evidence of torture. So I don't know if I answered your question. If you want me to elaborate further, please do ask further. May I add something? Thank you. Please, please. Um, I think it is also quite interesting that uh, many anti-dictatorial movement organizations campaigned in countries where uh, Greeks lived, such as Sweden, as Evie mentioned. For example, one of the most famous anti-dictatorial organizations, the so-called Panhellenic Liberation Movement, PAC, was actually established in, in Sweden by Andreas Pandreou. And uh, it was actually more active outside Greece than it was inside uh, Greece. It campaigned a lot in the United States, in Sweden, in other Western European countries. And it became quite famous because of the activities of Andreas Pandreou, who was a very uh, well-known uh, academic in the United States, but also a well-known politician in Greece. And um, this uh, movement, the Panhellenic Liberation Movement, became the sort of the basis for the uh, creation of the Panhellenic Socialist Movement after the end of the dictatorship, which became the major center-left party eventually, and it rose uh, in power in the early 1980s. How did the junta in Greece respond to the 1967 and 1973 Arab-Israeli wars? What does this reveal about Greek foreign relations during the time covered in your book? Right. Um... It is actually quite interesting. Um, I, the way I see it, the, the 1967 war helps the junta consolidate its position in Greece. The 1973 war, uh, it's quite, uh, for a while it became a sort of um, moving feast as to what the position of the Greek junta was at the time. I tend to believe that the Greek junta really uh, did not, although publicly said that they would not help uh, Israel at that time, they allowed the Americans to use their bases freely. So uh, I do not really think that Papadopoulos fell because of his um, supposedly um, brave position to not help Israel at that point. Uh, 
However, what I would like to elaborate a bit further is Greek-Israeli relations uh, during uh, this period, which um, Greek-Israeli relations were fraught during the period 1947-1967. In fact, they did not really become proper relations until the 1990s. Uh, Greece, although uh, um, recognized Israel, it was one of those countries that voted against partition, and it always uh, voted with the Arab uh, bloc. However, in 1967, the junta is isolated internationally, and Israel is looking always for friends in that part of the world. So they started a sort of mellowing of the relationship that took place um, in July 1967, just after uh, the Arab-Israeli uh, war, um, economic gurus who, what was his position at that point, Avanti? Was he um, uh, the um, uh, sec uh, under Secretary of State? No, uh, economic gurus in 1967, he was the foreign minister. The foreign minister. Uh, Ikanamugurus meets with um, the head of mission in Israel and he says to him that Greece basically is uh, very friendly towards Israel, but relations have to be kept sotto voce because um, Greece cannot antagonize its uh, close relationships with Arab countries. And the reason for that is Cyprus, basically. They don't want all the uh, Arab countries voting at the UN against Cyprus. I don't know if I'm right, but that's how I rationalize it. Uh, actually, just a few months later, in September 67, uh, the deputy leader of the Knesset, Navot, Hang on, let me look. Yes, Navon, Yijak Navon, um, Navon um, uh, visited Athens. He met the prime minister at the time, prime minister Collius, who Collius said to him, your dreams are ours, but all our cooperation will have to be harsh because of our concerns. And from then on, there is a very interesting relationship uh, brewing between Greece and Israel. Uh, Greece is trying to escape um, international isolation and they want to get more weapons on their hands. So they start negotiations with Israel on nuclear cooperation, on building aircraft, military repair facilities, military aircraft repair facilities. And in 1973, they are even able to negotiate a transfer of oil from the Eilat Ashkelon pipeline to Athens in January 1973, which is quite extraordinary, uh, really. But 
relations always remain subdued because what Israel wants is an extra vote at the UN, and that is something Greece cannot give. So that is how I view that period. What were the similarities and differences between the junta regime in Greece and the regime of Francisco Franco in Spain? Likewise, what were the similarities and differences between the junta regime in Greece and dictatorships in South America at this time? Can you compare and contrast their internal character and the transitions to democracy? Is anything unique about the case of Greece? Well, I'm afraid uh, there is there is something unique, uh, at least in terms of European uh, affairs. Uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese regimes, the, the dictatorships, were of course dictatorships. Uh, they were bad things. Uh, still, they were being supported, and they 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 had a relationship with some existing social forces, conservative social, mm -hmm. hyper-conservative social mm -hmm. forces. Uh, I'm afraid that the Hyundai in Greece was the result of a hijacking. It was a small group of officers without really having much uh, connections either with political forces and without having a background, a basis on some social forces uh, forces within society that wanted this kind of governance. Uh, so in this uh, respect, I think it was a very dissimilar uh, phenomenon compared to Spain and Portugal. And to some extent, they, they, they tried to imitate this kind of, if there is one, a Latin American model of uh, dictatorship. Uh, but even in Latin America, there, there, there were, at that time, social forces which were hyper-conservative and they were ready to support these kinds of regimes. Uh, so it was, it, was really, it was really the result of a hijacking. Uh, it, they, they got power through bluffing and they kept it uh, through bluffing, uh, which means that they did not have any kind of social roots. They tried to create social roots, but they didn't have any. Yeah. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'd be grateful if you could share me share with me where your attention has gone since completing this book. Where have you devoted your time? What have you been working on since the completion of this project? Well, let me start. Uh, many things, I must say. Uh, I've done some um, research on... Um, uh, other aspects of uh, Greek political history and Greek foreign policy in the 20th century. Uh, I've written a lot about NATO, uh, but now I think that all three of us uh, are going to be uh, are going to cooperate on another uh, big international project regarding the political history of the Southern European transitions. After all, next year, is the 50th anniversary of the Greek transition. So we may have uh, the opportunity to work again together. That would be great. I have to say, I have veered slightly away from Greece over this period. I am trying to finish a book which started about the 20 years ago on the 
on the international history of the Mediterranean, but a project which is going to finish much faster, to which Avantis has contributed as well, is an edited volume on energy security and the transatlantic crisis of 1982 over the uh, construction of the Western Siberian pipeline. So I've gone back to being a cold warrior rather than human rights <laughs> writer. As we yeah, end, if, I was yeah, just curious uh, if if yeah. Antonis can can share his yeah of course his subsequent work yeah uh, I was uh, involved in a project about the Lausanne Peace Treaty because it is the centennial of the Lausanne the signing of the Lausanne Peace Treaty uh, which was signed in 1923 so I published a small book together with a colleague Angelo Sirigos and I'm trying to finish a project on uh, the Greek referendums two of which actually took place during the junta period, the one being in 1968 and the second one in 1973. Thank you for sharing. Your respective projects sound precious and extremely relevant and important. But I wish you, see, you only... Many, you see, we have too many anniversaries. <laughs> the polytechnic one as well. Yes. yes. Thank you. I wish you the best of luck with your current and future work and projects. And I would like to convey my heartfelt gratitude to you for your eloquence, erudition, and wisdom, which you shared today in all your generous answers to the questions that we discussed. Thank, well, thank you, you so very much. much for inviting us. Thank you, thank so you very much, Ari. It was, was my pleasure. honor. It was it my honor. to meet you, Ari. Thank uh, you, bye-bye. As, as we end today, I am your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Antonis Klapsis, Evantis Hatsai Vasiliou, and Effie Pedaliou. We have been discussing their newly edited book, The Greek Junta and the International System, a case study in, of South European dictatorships published in New York by Routledge 2020. The other co-editor, Constantine Arvanitopoulos, was not able to join us today. Antonis Klapsis is Assistant Professor of Diplomacy and International Organization at the University of the Peloponnese. There, he serves as the academic coordinator of the Center of International and European Political Economy and Governments, in the Department of Political Science and International Relations. Evantis Hatsaiva Saleyu is Professor of Postwar History at the University of Athens. Effie Pedaliu is Visiting Fellow at the London School of Economics, LSE's IDEAS, I-D-E-A-S Institute. She is also Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. She also serves as co-editor of the Palgrave book series, Security, Conflict and Cooperation in the Contemporary World. Thank you wholeheartedly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robin. Thank you.